0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Happy New Year to you. I hope that you all had a wonderful holiday season, that you enjoyed the last few days of 2020. I know that many people were eagerly waiting for this year to end. That was a common sentiment on the various telecasts on New Year's Eve. And we always count down to the new year, but maybe we did so a little more fervently this time. Well, now it's here. It is 2021. Our Christmas decorations have been put away. It is a new year. Now what? And that's kinda what we're gonna be thinking about today. We, we, we are in a two-part sermon series on Christmastide. That's a term that many of us may not be too familiar with. In our staff, people said it sounded like a pine-scented detergent. Others, who may be a bit more athletic, suggested it sounded like good surfing waves, like December in Australia or something. Like, ooh, that's the Christmas tide coming in. So this is not a common term for us, and it's not a common observance in our particular church. But we're probably familiar with the the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Right on the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Twelve days, where'd they get that from? Well, that's Christmas tide. In fact, uh, certain denominations, it's, it's called 12-tide. It's 12 days, and it runs from December 25th to January 5th. As Pastor Ryan explained last week, Advent is the season of waiting and expectation. And our sermon series focused on holy anticipation, waiting in hope, waiting for peace, waiting for joy, waiting for love, waiting for Christ. Well, now Christ has arrived, and Christmastide commemorates his arrival. So we wanted to use the liturgical calendar to reflect on his arrival and our receiving of that gift now that the wait is over. The wait is over. The Messiah has arrived. The Anointed One that was prophesied about has come. At last, the Christ is here. The wait is over. What people had hoped for and longed for and desired to see has finally come. And it starts off just as dramatically as you might think. Here's how it starts. Luke 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Jesus arrives and angels show up and the glory of God shines forth and they worship and praise and proclaim things about Jesus and everyone who hears about it is amazed. Then on the eighth day, they circumcise Jesus and they offer the sacrifices at the temple. Mary and Joseph are just minding their own business and out of nowhere, Simeon and Anna show up and prophesy over the child. That's fitting because this is no ordinary child. And then sometime later, magi from the east show up and give him gold and incense and myrrh, kingly gifts. You know, some Christians, I I think, are a little confused about when the magi show up, probably because of our nativity sets, right? They come with the magi and we just set them up right alongside with the shepherds. uh, But they weren't there at that point. Matthew says, Chapter two, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. So the implication from the text is that Jesus is born and then the star shows up and the Magi start their long journey to him. And you'll remember last week uh, in Luke, Eight days after his birth, when they circumcise Jesus and give the offering, it says this, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That is the poor person's offering. Here's what the law says, Leviticus. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. If you've received gold, frankincense, and myrrh, you could probably spring for a lamb. So this is pretty exciting times for Mary and Joseph, which is what you'd think in that sense. It's what you'd expect about the arrival of the Messiah. We've seen angels and visions and proclamations and prophecies, and now Mary and Joseph aren't so poor anymore. This is a great kid. And then Joseph gets a vision from God, Matthew. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That's scary, that's disturbing. But it's dramatic. It's what you might expect. Of course this child is going to be hunted. This is no ordinary child. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed. The Christ has arrived at last. Of course there's going to be drama. So they flee to Egypt. And then Joseph receives another vision telling him that the coast is clear. You're safe. Herod is dead. You can return. So they settle in Nazareth. And then... Um, so they settle in Nazareth, right? And then they, well, they, they, work, right? So they, they work and, and they eat and sleep and stuff like that. And, and Jesus grows, Jesus grows, which, which I guess is not that unusual really. Um, you know, the, the arrival of Jesus starts off really exciting, I mean, the first few years were quite something, but then it just settles and everything becomes ordinary, normal, mundane even. Now, there is one other story from Jesus's childhood. We see this in Luke chapter 2. Every year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. This shows us that Jesus is exceptional, that Jesus is no ordinary child, that he is amazing. But really, in some ways, the most interesting thing is that his parents left him behind. And I'm not judging their parenting. I've misplaced a kid or two in my time, but not for days. And my kids are really not that special. I, I have spares, but there's only one Messiah. This is not Macaulay Culkin. This is the anointed one. You double check before you leave. right? Do, do we have the Messiah? Okay, we can go. He, he's the Christ, remember? Miracle birth, angels, visions, proclamations, prophecies. You have to at least remember the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, right? Double check for that kid. And when they finally finally find the Messiah, they seem rather annoyed. You can almost hear the tone in Mary's voice, right? Why have you treated us like this? That's a response any parent would have with any kid in this situation. Now, they're not looking at him like he's the Messiah, the, the anointed one. No, they're seeing their 12 year old son that they were worried sick about and they're kind of annoyed at him. You know, that feels very normal, doesn't it? Very normal. Mary and Joseph had heard that he is the Christ. They've seen evidence to that fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one that they've been waiting for. The wait is over. But their world went on as it always had. And their life was very pedestrian. There were some amazing things that transpired, but, but after and in between them, there were years of just ordinary, mundane moments. It's kind of anticlimactic. You know, so often when we long for things and strive for things and we finally get it, there's a bit of a letdown. There's a twinge of of sadness, even amongst the joy. And as a child, I think I felt that way every Christmas. I I so longed for it. I waited for it. And then it finally arrived. And and I loved it. It was great and magical and wonderful. But it was over. And now it's back to normal life. And I felt a, a little bit of of emptiness there. And we see this with, with grown-ups too, and particularly in sports, it's pretty evident. You hear all kinds of testimony from athletes who worked and strove and longed for a championship, and they finally get it. And as good as it is, there's an emptiness there. You know, I'm probably going to feel that way when the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl this year. So pray for me. <laughs> but, but i think that this restlessness in us is in many ways a, a good thing you know i love this quote from c.s lewis he says this if i find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy the only logical explanation is that i was made for another world but the question is can we have that feeling of letdown or or melancholy do we have that feeling when it comes to christ I think the honest answer is yes. And in large part, because we are still waiting, just like they were. Well, the Messiah had arrived, the anointed one, the Christ has come at last. The wait is over. Now it's time to wait some more. You know, Luke tells us that Jesus doesn't start his ministry until he's about 30 Luke chapter 3. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And that is the state that, that we are in. We celebrate Christ's arrival, but we wait for his second coming. And as we walk this Christian walk, when we first receive Christ, it can be so exciting and filled with joy and passion and zeal and drama. But then as life goes along, it can sort of settle. And everything becomes ordinary, normal, mundane even. And back to C.S. Lewis. He he talks about this in the screw tape letters. I've mentioned that book many, many times from the pulpit. I think it's a really good one. But even though I'm sure you're aware, I have to explain it. Otherwise, the text won't make any sense. So the Screwtape letters are written from the perspective of a demon writing to a demon underling as he works to corrupt a Christian man. So at this point, the man, the patient, has just converted to Christianity. And this is Screwtape's advice to a demon. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy, that would be God, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. It can be so disappointing and anticlimactic when we discover that the Christian life is so non-glamorous. We can have aspirations of excitement and drama and big moments of boldly preaching the gospel, even in the face of danger and possible martyrdom. Because even danger can be preferable to dryness. Even danger can be preferable to just sitting down, opening your Bible, and reading. That is so boring, and ordinary, and laborious. Well, there are and will be big moments when we receive Christ, but so often we are called to be faithful and righteous in the ordinary and mundane. For Mary and Joseph, the wait being over meant long nights, feedings, diaper changes or the equivalent, a lot of laundry, trying to stop his crying, grateful when he's asleep, accidents, spills, stumbles, and good things too. Things like first words and first steps and laughter and joy and holidays. But very ordinary you know i i don't think that joseph got to see jesus in his ministry it's clear that joseph dies at some point before jesus goes to the cross but the bible does not record when he died or how it just stops mentioning him according to john Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding mary is recorded as being in attendance uh, but there's no mention of joseph In fact, the last concrete example of Joseph being still in the picture was the passage in Luke when Jesus was 12. So I don't know, but but I think that Joseph's main experience of the Messiah was the laborious and ordinary task of raising a son. I don't think he got to see Jesus' ministry. And I think that might give extra weight when we hear Jesus' words in the midst of his ministry, he says this to his followers. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. You can feel the excitement from the disciples. This is exciting times. The wait is over. But recognize that many people longed to see this but didn't righteous people prophets even in john it says this meanwhile his disciples urged him rabbi eat something but he said to them i have food to eat that you know nothing about then his disciples said to each other could someone have brought him food my food says jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Oh, we undoubtedly would rather be the reaper than the sower. We want to be a part of the excitement of a harvest where the fields are ripe and to see the masses come into the kingdom of God. But many righteous people have longed to see it, but did not That may not be our task. But our response should be like Jesus. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Whether that is sowing or reaping, whether that is filled with excitement and danger and big moments and miracles, or whether that is in small and ordinary and the mundane tasks of life. Do the will of him. You know, Jesus did bless uh, their eyes for seeing those things, but, but God also blesses the humble. You know, in that same chapter in Matthew where Jesus tells them, your eyes are blessed for seeing what I'm doing and your ears are blessed for hearing what I'm saying, we have this account. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. That's crazy, isn't it? Their ears heard his teachings and were amazed by it. Their eyes saw miracles even, and they took offense at him. Contrast that with Simeon. As Pastor Ryan spoke about last week, uh, Simeon is waiting for the Messiah. And he goes to the temple and he sees a baby. A baby from a poor family from Nazareth. And Before Jesus ever says a word, before he ever performs a miracle, Simeon, by the Spirit, through faith, sees Jesus as he is. Oh, he's not fooled by the ordinary and humble and unassuming manifestation, though he sees him for who he is. And that is so important for us because one of the main ways that we experience and see Christ is through the regular and ordinary and, let's face it, not that impressive people seated with us in this congregation. Your life might feel ordinary, and mundane and unexceptional, but when lived in faithfulness and righteousness, it is the manifestation of Christ himself. Back to scrutate in that same chapter that we read it says this: when he goes inside he's talking about church when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side, no matter your patient thanks to our father below is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, you see he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. Don't get lost in your expectations. Don't get lost in the trappings, but see Christ as Simeon did. See the light of God in jars of clay. We've had a lot of funerals lately. We had uh, two of them just last Tuesday. Those are hard things, but it's so edifying to hear about the lives of people who claim Christ and have received him, to hear and to see the way that God has moved and expressed himself through the lives of ordinary people, sometimes in big and amazing ways, and others in simple and small and ordinary things, like sitting in a pew or singing hymns out of tune. Even from that, people saw Christ because it was done in faithfulness and righteousness. And that's what's going to last. What's going to last is the ways in which we showed Christ in the big and small ways that we were faithful and righteous where well, we can claim, I did the will of him who sent me, whether his will be grand or small, miraculous or mundane to our own eyes. We have received Christ. We have received the gift. We have opened the gift. The wait is over. Now live it out in faithful obedience until he comes again. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.